I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. Glad you're here with us in person. Glad you're here with us online. I already heard some of y'all got some sick kids at home. That's a good time to stay home. So super glad that we have this awesome resource to be able to be online. And today, uh, as we gather together um, at Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work, we are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission, and that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And that's a challenging thing to do because there's a lot of aspects of our life that can come in conflict with that very easily. And so we are spending this fall looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a book of wisdom from, a, uh, we believe, a king named Solomon who's trying to impart some, some wisdom in his old age to the next generation on, hey, here's how I lived life. Here are things that went well. Here are things that didn't go well. And I, I just believe that we're all people that could use a little more wisdom, right? And so we have given out um, uh, an Ecclesiastes scriptural journal, so you can have this book. We've got a discipleship guide uh, called Vapor, um, because that's what we're calling this series, because he says that when we're trying to find our life under the sun, which is shorthand for apart from God, all of it is vapor. All of it is vanity. All of it is this intangible, like, I can see it, I can sense it, but every time I try to hold on to it, it just fades away. It lacks substance. And I think that this is a book that could get really depressing really, really fast. Kind of like the weather here in the Northwest this week. Super depressing, super fast. I had to like iron a flannel because I hadn't even worn one for, for months um, just to, to, to try to stay warm. So as we look at this though, we're now into week three of this series. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one through 11. You can turn there. That's where we're going to be here in a moment. But to recap chapter one, he asked the question, what is the point of life? What's the point of life if it is fleeting? What's the point of life if there's these unending cycles? What's the point of life if we're not going to be remembered? And again, he's asking this question from what we would call today a secular perspective. The perspective of somebody who doesn't believe or worship or acknowledge God in their lives or in the universe. And so that, the answer to that, his first kind of experiment was, let me dive into wisdom. Let me dive into knowledge. Let me dive into experience. And so last week, um, we looked a lot at what uh, wisdom uh, can gain us. Uh, wisdom, of course, is a gift from the Lord. But when we divorce it from the Lord, wisdom on its own isn't going to ultimately satisfy us. And so the end of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes actually says this. It said, For in as much wisdom is much vexation, that's a tough word, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And we said, yes, all the information we have about the world, all the experiences we have in the world haven't always led us to be more happy and joyful, but to more, be a little more stressed out, right? And so here we come to chapter 2, and, and he's going to, um, uh, uh, he looked at wisdom last week, this week he's going to look at self-indulgence, and next week he's going to look at the concept of work. So if you have your Bibles, you have that scripture journal, you have it online, uh, I hope you do, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'm going to walk through this today in a few different parts, starting with verse 1, and it says this. This is Solomon, again, writing to us for some wisdom, and he said, I said in my heart, 
Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity, vapor, insubstantial. And so when, when wisdom, knowledge, you're like, okay, I just want to know everything. I want to understand everything. Dang it, this is how the world works. I'm super upset about it. I'm really frustrated. Okay, now I want to move from this experience of knowing more about the pain in the world to just check out. Let's just go with pleasure because, I mean, can we be honest? That's, that would just be a lot nicer. None of us vote yes for pain, no for pleasure, right? We want it the other way around. And so Solomon has spent last week, if you will, he's, he was in the library. Think about this like a, like a college campus. I went to the University of Washington. There's the, the Susilo Reading Room, a beautiful, beautiful library of which I spent very li- limited amounts of time in when I was in college. Um, but but I, I mean, it looked good on the brochures. Uh, and so I saw it, at least during the tour. Uh, and so you, you look at the library, and Solomon has spent all his time in the library. Maybe another way to say this, Solomon spent a lot of time this last, last week doing his own research. Okay? He knows all the things. In fact, we said last week, God actually gave him, like Neo in the Matrix, the red pill of wisdom so that he could actually see everything properly. And he's like, oh man, this is how how things really work. And so Solomon's been in the library. And at a certain point, you've studied enough, and you're like, I I gotta get out of the library. I mean, some people did. Again, I didn't. But you gotta get out of the library. And so he's gonna move from the library to the laboratory. And the lab and the experiments he's going to run on pleasure, on accomplishment, on achievement, on consumption is the most well-appointed laboratory you could ever imagine. He's getting out of the library and into the laboratory. And this test for the preacher, we see here, that again, Ecclesiastes means the preacher. Uh, and so he's, he's preaching this sermon. And the test that he's throwing out isn't about whether pleasure is good or bad. Or if like, you know, cake tastes good. It's really about himself and his own heart. He says here, I'm going to test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. A a literal translation would actually say, I'm going to plunge myself into pleasure. So this is not like just, you know, kind of like, hey, uh, I want to just like dip my toe in the water. Um, We we have a boat and and the rule on our boat is in the summertime, there's only one way to get off the boat. What is that? You better jump. Right, you better leap in, embrace summer. We, we took a friend of ours out. He's kind of kind of a, a buttoned up guy, and, and, and like we all jumped out, and then he like snapped on his life jacket and like eased into the water. I was like, bro, you didn't know the rules. Like you don't you don't ease off a boat. You jump. And for Solomon, he's like, I'm gonna go test pleasure, and not like mm, maybe just a little bit. Like I don't know. Boom, diving into the river flowing, having a great time, all in. He is all in on pleasure. But it's pleasure divorced from God. It's actually sought independently of God, his designs, his purposes. And when that pursuit happens, when happiness is our greatest goal, he says already it's going to lead to the same place that wisdom leads. Wisdom, he said, was vanity. Wisdom was chasing after the wind. Pleasure, same verdict. And so as we get into these um, experiments, there's going to be moments where we hear about Solomon's life that's a little intoxicated, a little like, a little bit of FOMO, a little bit of, what is Solomon complaining about? I want some of Solomon's life. And he starts right away with the verdict of the experiment before we get into the actual guts of it. In fact, actually, 
Verse 11 uh, uh, of chapter 2 says it really clearly um, that it is all vanity and striving after the wind, that there's nothing to be gained. And so he wants us to know, before we get into these experiments, it doesn't go well. So um, if you, in 1997, walked into a movie theater and saw James Cameron's uh, movie Titanic, and you were like, I don't know what's going to happen here. Like, do they make it across to the mainland? Do, do Jack and Rose live happily ever after? Like, he, he wants you to know right away, the ship's going to drown. Did you hear the title? It's called Titanic. Like, it ends with drown, Leo, drown. So before we think about pleasure and goodness and, and all these things that he does, he wants you to know right away, it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. It's like seeing a movie premiere for a comedy and you're like, oh my gosh, that movie's gonna be so funny. And you realize, oh, they already gave you all the jokes. The rest of it was just 90 minutes of just, ugh. So here we are. In this sermon, however, and this is, I think, important, he's not saying don't enjoy life. He's not saying don't enjoy pleasure. He's saying know what pleasure is capable of and know what it's not. And that's an important distinction. See, all pleasure, whatever it is, is God's idea. We hit this often, right? The reason we like the way a sunset or sunrise looks, God's idea. The reason chocolate tastes good, God's idea. The reason uh, that when a husband and wife come together in Congress, it's awesome, is God's idea. God was like, I had no idea that they were going to like take chocolate and flour and mix it together and make cake. I don't know. No, God's idea. So anything you find pleasurable and enjoyable in life is likely from the Lord. He wants us to experience joy. In fact, in chapters 8 and 9 in Ecclesiastes, he says joy in life is commendable, particularly because there's so much toil under the sun, so much difficulty under the sun. He's like, hey, it's okay to enjoy God's gifts. If you get to the place where you're so despondent and grumpy that you can't enjoy God's gifts anymore, that's time to repent and redirect and actually enjoy some of life. But he is saying there's a pursuit of pleasure apart from God that doesn't satisfy that doesn't give us meaning, that doesn't give us purpose. In fact, actually leads to sin and destruction as good gifts are turned into idolatry, are turned into addiction, are abused or become selfless or lead to destruction in our relationships, right? Um, there's this awesome, awesome song that I was reminded of uh, this week that you too wrote for Johnny Cash. Ooh, man, that's a, that's a great combo right there. And it's called The Wanderer. And you can look it up and you can listen to it on Spotify or whatever. But, but I mean, you two writing a song for Johnny Cash and it's based off of, in part, the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's this line that I think is important for us as we look at chapter two here in this song that says this, in The Wanderer, this key verse. Johnny Cash, I can't sing, I'll just say it. I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. That's the experiment. That's the let's go all out on pleasure and see without God and see where it goes. And, and to be really, really clear, um, it, I don't know how you all are coming in here today, but like, okay, you came into a church. Um, now, like, like, like a, a conservative white guy in his 40s is up here talking about pleasure. He probably doesn't even know what that's like, um, you know, or anything like. Um, I pursued this as much as I could. Now, I'm not going to claim that I like did it as much as Solomon, but... Um, my story is one where um, I went to the University of Washington, joined a fraternity specifically to run all these experiments as much as I could. 
And so if you're coming in today and saying, ah, I did that experiment, or I'm doing that experiment right now, is this a place for me? This is a place for you. Because some of us are, as Jesus would say in the prodigal son, the older brother who like really never struggled but, but then became super self-righteous. And some of us said, Dad, give me all the money right now. I want to go party. And I'm the prodigal. And some of you are prodigals. And it's time to come home. And it's time to recognize that our experiments were failures. We'll, we'll come back to that. And so as we look at these experiments, I, man, if, if you hear judgment from me, just know I'm one of these guys that, that if I had Solomon's resources, I would have done what Solomon did. And my consequences didn't lead well at all. So here we are. Let's look at experiment number one. I've done it all. Verses two and three says this. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, we'll talk about that, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so this, this is experiment number one. You can call it, I've done it all. And so for him, uh, during this short life, he's like, I want to know what's good. I want to know what's enjoyable. I want to escape um, everything that's bad and difficult. And so his first experiment on I've done it all is entertainment and laughter. He's like, okay, the news stinks. What's on Netflix? Let's just turn it off. And, and he says of laughter, of entertainment in some regards, but laughter in particular, he says is mad. And I want to be clear here. God is not humorless. Okay? Like God made an ostrich. Look at that thing and don't laugh. Right? Okay? Jesus, super hilarious. Um, John and James had a mom, is one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, they were kinda, she was kind of a helicopter parent. She comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, I want my sons at your right and left hand. You know, I want my sons to be captain of the flag football team. What is Jesus' nickname, John and James? Sons of Thunder. Okay? Jesus is hilarious. He's like, Your mom. Jesus might have actually had the first year mom. Okay, no. That's over here. That's not in the text. Okay. Jesus is not humorless. God is not humorless. In fact, humor is there to lighten our hearts. Like, it's not a bad thing. But when he says it's mad, he's not talking about insanity, but immorality. So there's humor that lightens the heart, and there's humor that glorifies sin. Think any Judd Apatow film, right? Anchorman, Wedding uh, 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 bridesmaids, any of those, right? You're laughing, you're laughing, and you're like, ooh, I feel a little dirty. That's what he's talking about. And you're like, well, okay, there's, 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 sin that, uh, there's, there's humor that glorifies immorality and, and, and sin. Uh, and, then, and then there's just humor that's just overly cynical all the time, right? It's just like, man, I get it. You're super sarcastic. You know, you're always a critic. That's super funny that you got that. You just dunked on somebody on Twitter. That's great, right? It was super hilarious. But nobody feels better afterwards. And, and there is that cynical, you know, we call it dark humor. And there's a reason we call it dark humor, because it doesn't lighten our hearts. And, and we've seen this, I think, even culturally in the last few years. Like, a lot of humor was, was really cynical, was, he says, folly even at a certain point, so foolish, right? So, like, you know, you got... Family Guy with the dad who's an idiot, Homer Simpson before that, right? We all know Michael Scott from The Office. Nobody's like, when I grow up, I want to be more like Michael Scott, right? Nobody. If you do, you're Michael Scott and don't do that. But I think there's a reason now that, that the culture kind of shifts back and, and like, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, like, I can't say watch Ted Lasso. Like, like Ted Lasso is hilarious. 
And the reason we like it is because it warms the heart a little bit. Like he's actually a character that people are like, oh, yeah, I like his optimistic outlook. I like his charm, right? So humor's not always bad. Humor's not always wrong. But something happens where humor can be so frivolous that we begin to ignore the reality and challenges of the world. So, I mean, again, I love humor. Two weeks ago, my wife and I and some friends of ours, like, we went out to a comedy club and just laughed. And it was great. It was so much fun. And then the world marches on. Place to visit, not a place to live. When I lived... Um, uh, near Green Lake, uh, off of uh, uh, Highway 99 in Seattle. Um, always, if you don't know Highway 99 in Aurora, 88th, kind of, or 80th, that area, a lot of police activity on that road. And I was one block away from it. And so every night, the sirens would blare. And at a certain point, the only response was just turn up the TV more. Just be a little more entertained so I don't have to worry about what's going on out there. I think that's maybe in the last year and a half some things we've tried. Everybody just tried to turn the volume up on the entertainment and, and be satisfied? How have you had entertainment try to satisfy you? Okay. He goes on in this experiment of I've done it all. He pursues alcohol and substances. There is a, he, right, he says, uh, to lay hold of folly, I wanted to cheer my body with wine. Um, guys, there's a fine line between being a connoisseur and being a drunkard or a glutton. And I don't think we are good judges of what that line is. I don't know that we always see that line, particularly for ourselves. And so we've become, and we are a culture of people that is always looking for more, always uh, uh, wanting uh, addiction or extremes. We don't just want a little bit of something, right? Something's good, I want a lot of it, and, I, and more is always better. And so he says, hey, I, I tried to cheer myself with wine and, I, and still have my wits about me, still have some wisdom. So what's the, what's the line on, on, is this wine that Paul tells Timothy to have a glass of to, to settle down his, his stomach and enjoy life? Or, or, or am I just trying to escape and check out? Um, again, back to my fraternity days. Like, I feel like all of chapter two was Chris and his fraternity days. In my fraternity days, we actually hired a consultant to come in to our fraternity uh, on, on, on like a weeknight and lead us through a seminar on how to consume alcohol at a certain rate and pace so that you would get as buzzed as possible without falling into a stupor, blacking out, and then here's the electrolytes you need to drink and here's the steps you need to do to not be hung over the next day. That was the guy's job. I don't even know if he had a background check. I don't know anything about this guy in retrospect, but like that was his job. I don't know how he slept at night in retrospect. Well, probably you know, drinking, maybe. I don't know. I'm not trying to make light of it, okay, guys? But like there is a pursuit of, okay, what's the right amount? I want to ride high without the low. I want to mix my uppers and downers just so. And Solomon says, like, I had that consultant. I, I did it. And I wasn't any happier he went to the limits. He went to the extremes. He's not half in, he's all in. And so he says that he's trying to use wisdom to enjoy pleasure as much as he can. But again, it's worldly wisdom apart from God. And so I want you to ask yourself, how have you experimented with, with alcohol or substances or, 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 or anything that has now hold mastery over you that like, I need that or I can't get through the day. Or, Man, things get tough. This is where I run to. And you need to ask yourself that because um, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this, because um, again, pleasure's not bad. Like, this is not a blanket statement on alcohol. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, imprisoned, enslaved, addicted to anything. Those who the Son has set free are free indeed. And so we should not be constantly putting on the chains of bondage and addiction and think that somehow that's going to just lead to satisfied life. Okay. Experiment number two. Number one was he's done it all. Number two is he's made it all. Verses four through nine. He's made it all. He says this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I've had slaves who were born in my house. Actually, sorry, we're going to stop there. We're going to stop at verse 6. We'll stop at verse 6. Here he is. He's like, okay, I've tried to do all the fun things. You know, I want to accomplish something. I want to build something. I want to make something. And so uh, the preacher here, he is involved in the creation of all these great works. And he's like, hey, I'm an image bearer of God who created the universe. I'm going to use my creativity to, to create an environment and a place and a space and a culture that I want to live in so that everyone around me can say, whoa, how awesome is your creativity? How awesome is your workmanship? And again, workmanship and creativity, gifts from God. He's now saying, what happens if I take that gift of cultivation, building creativity, and then instead of using it to glorify God, enjoy Him, and the flourishing of all people, what if I take that gift of creativity, building, achievement, and I just direct it for myself? And I can say that was with a high level of confidence because right here, seven times in these two or three verses, four through six, he uses the terms I or myself. He talks about himself constantly. So he knows his motives in this building are selfish. He even says as much. He's making his own world within uh, the world. If you look at 1 Kings 7, you can look at that offline. Um, and talking about Solomon's life, it says that he built um, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Okay, so he's got like a place up in Suncadia. The hall of pillars, that sounds intimidating. The hall of the throne, also called the hall of judgment. I mean, he's the king after all. So he made himself a capital. He's got a forest home. He's got, uh, it says as well, um, in, uh, uh, he built his primary residence that took him 10 years to build. In addition, he made another house for his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. We're going to see in a minute why that was really important for her to not live with him for a while. And then in Second Chronicles 8, it actually says he had whole cities built in the wilderness that were fortified just for his own private army. So he's built a house for himself to enjoy. He's built fortresses for security. So he's got safety. He's got provision, protection, all of these things, right? It says that the gardens that he's built in verse four, um, right? It says that he made great works, planted vineyards, okay? Gardens, planted all kinds of fruit trees. So he's got fresh fruit. He's got anything you could enjoy. And you're like, wow, he uses garden a lot. He uses fruit a lot. 
and then he's protect, protecting himself and providing for himself. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where someone is dwelling in a garden with protection and provision? Yes, that's how the Bible starts. It starts with a man and a woman placed in a garden to do what? Create, cultivate, build, while enjoying, while having pleasure, while having provision, while having protection. So what Solomon is doing here in these verses is trying to recreate the garden by himself for himself. See, you too, again, with Johnny Cash and the Wanderer, says it this way. He says, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. That's what Solomon's trying to do. He's trying to recreate the garden for himself, this garden of Eden, this paradise restored for himself completely without the God. And you're like, wow, that's amazing he was able to do that. Um, guys, we, we do this. We want this. Watch any HGTV show, right? And what are the words that they use to describe spaces in the home, right? Retreat, sanctuary, peaceful, getaway, serene, right? It's like, wow, you've got two shower heads. You've now recreated the Garden of Eden. Congratulations, right? But we all do this. Right? I mean, right? anytime that we, we want to do a self-improvement project for our house, anytime we want our house to look better, is it wrong? No, but, but what, what it is in our hearts is, is a desire for cultivation and for beauty. And for Solomon, he said he created it all for himself. Like we, we got to host some, some pastors here this week and, and they hadn't been to the building for over five or six years and they came in and they said, wow, we love what you've done with the place. And, and we're like, well, yeah, we, yeah, we want places and spaces to, to look nice, to, to be enjoyable. But for Solomon, he's building it for himself. Uh, last summer, you know, we redid our, our deck in our house, mostly so that when you'd step on the wood, you wouldn't fall through. That was a real thing that happened. Um, really, truly. Um, but, but with that, we also wanted it to look better. And yeah, there's great moments that I've had sitting out there in the morning, sipping coffee, reading my Bible, looking out in the mountains and everything. But the best times I've had on that deck aren't with myself, but with a group of people, right? Sitting around the fire pit, enjoying life together. See, Solomon did it for himself. We were called to live in community, to, to be with one another. And so it's, it's okay to want some of the garden, but, but he wants it without God. He wants all of his creation to reflect his glory. Psalm 115 verse 1 has something to say about that. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. He's building for himself. And he's not just making an amazing garden. I mean, he's, he's really creating some stuff. He's really built, he's really made it all. Uh, you see this phrase here where it says, I made pools to water trees. He's got so much stuff He's had to build more infrastructure just to support his stuff. Jesus talks about this later when he talks about the parable of, of a rich man who, who acquired so much that his silos, right, to store his, his wheat and his wealth weren't big enough, so he tore them down and built new silos just to hold his stuff. And that guy did it with selfish 
Motivation, Luke 12 says it this way, where the, the guy says, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, again, he's having a conversation with himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Live out Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Jesus says it was foolish of him to do that because that night it said his soul was going to be demanded of him. And so again, it's not wrong to build. I mean, again, we're, we're created to be creative. We're created to cultivate. That's part of our meaning and purpose in life. But it can't be an end to itself or just to ourselves, but for our enjoyment and the flourishing of others. He's made it all, and it's still not enough. So that leads us to verses 7 through 8, where we see that he's had it all. First, he's tried it all, or he's done it all, rather, and now he's made it all, and now he's had it all. Verses 7 and 8. After he built the houses, the pools, all that stuff, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This transition in experiment three, experiment number three, I've had it all, is when self-glorifying creativity leads to selfish consumption. Solomon has had so many people working for him so long. We say it's 10 years to build a house, right? He's got all the fortresses, he's got soldiers, he's got, that he's actually has slaves who, who now have gone to the second generation. The people were born in his household specifically to work for him. It doesn't really get much more selfish than that. To have people that exist just for you. He said, this is what I did. I had all the people. I had everything I could ever need. They, they worked for me. He had the best of everything the world had to offer. He said, all this silver, gold, treasures of kings and provinces, right? It's all come to him. From a material standpoint, there's not anything that Solomon didn't have. So think of, think of the richest person in the world. Think of like the, the absolute like most influential person you can think of. Think of a trendsetter. Think of somebody in pop culture. Solomon had all of that together. Political power, social power, economic power, all of those things tied together. He's had it all. He has the most opulent and aspirational lifestyle imaginable. None of us. As wealthy as we are, and I do believe that if, if you're here in America at this time, you're one of the more wealthy people in human history. Solomon blew us all away. And so he asked this question, and he's trying to ask and answer the question, is life truly better if I have more stuff? Does consuming more lead to lasting joy? And maybe you're, maybe you're saying, well, I mean, it was way back then. I mean, did, did he really... Have it great. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 10. In fact, I'll just read part of it here. Verse 21 says, All of Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. 
None were silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Skip ahead if you want to, to verses 26 and 27. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 1,200 horsemen, 12,000 rather, horsemen, who he stationed in the chariot cities with the king of Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephleah. Like, to put it bluntly, shiplap was nothing in the days of Solomon. Everything rich mahogany. Okay? That was Solomon. He's like, I'm kind of a big deal. Right? It says, actually, gold or silver was nothing in the days of Solomon in Jerusalem and Israel. He was so wealthy that, I mean, man, somewhere Ronald Reagan would smile. Like, his wealth trickled down to others. There was trickle-down wealth in Jerusalem and Israel because it's like, hey, uh, I'm so big, I'm so wealthy, there's got to be a whole economy that functions just to make my life go. Those soldiers need a place to live. They've got families, right? And so like, like the people in Jerusalem are like, we're doing pretty well. We got Amazon money around here, right? They're, they're doing way better, right, than like eastern Montana. They're crushing it. And so like even him having it all, like other people are even benefiting from it. And it not everybody, like I said, slaves on slaves. A little bit of economic injustice. Okay, well, there will be other sermons for that. And here he is, if you're like, okay, cool, he's rich, he's wealthy, that's great, but what's the point if you can't share it? What's the point, rather, if you can't show it off? There was an Instagram, so you had to have people actually show up. And so Solomon was throwing a party every single day that would put the Met Gala to shame. L- literally, here's his daily allowance in 1 Kings chapter 4. It just talks about what Solomon had every day for his parties. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, so like corn, so we got corn and wheat, 10 fatted oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, locally sourced organic, boom, pasture-fed, 100 sheep. Besides, I'm not even going to count, deer, gazelles, roebucks. Don't know what a roebuck tastes like? Guessing it's amazing, okay? Oh, and some fatted fowl. We got chicken and stuff too, once you're done with the roebuck. This is the party he's throwing, and so, so people have all come to the party, good food, good drink. They're seeing all the fancy stuff. Everything is gold. Right now, the party's going to be out in the mountains. This time, we're going to party in the beach. We're going to party in the city. Party, 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 right? And they come and eat. Well, I mean, you don't want to just eat, right? I mean, unless you move to Dallas, that's all you can do in Dallas is eat. That's not a joke. We did it for a year. All you can do in Dallas is eat. No other activities. Here, Solomon, says, has all the best singers, He's bringing in entertainment. He's like, okay, I tried the lowbrow, kind of like dark, R-rated comedy. I'm going to throw a party, and it's going to be like the Met Gala. No tax the rich dresses, but like, it's going to be nice and fancy. And, and, and so I'm going to have like, like the Philharmonic come. I'm going to have an amazing singer come. He's going to have you two and Johnny Cash show up. I don't know who it is for you, Jason Aldean, or I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I think this week everybody's on Nicki Minaj. I don't know. Okay, we'll leave it alone. He's having this amazing party. We're going to enjoy the finer things of life. We're going to do art appreciation, the diversity of singers, entertainers, all coming around to enjoy him and his guests. And then there's this anecdote I found in one of the uh, commentaries that while everybody else in Israel was sweating it out in the summer, 
Solomon actually had snow down from Mount Hermon to have cold drinks. Do you guys realize cold drinks are like a luxury that's like new in the last 100, 150 years in hot parts of the world? Solomon had it. The bros got like a margarita maker like a couple thousand years ago. I don't know how he did it. But he's like, I got the best of the best. I have, I have it all. So he throws the party. After all the work, right, he's built, he's built a bunch of stuff. Good food, good drink, great entertainment. The party's over. But the night's not over because now it's time for the after party. After art appreciation, after all the feasting, he's ready to head to bed and Solomon's a guy who's never alone. Never needed a night by himself. See, Solomon's consumed conspicuously everything, including sex and women. And this is where it gets maybe a little uncomfortable, right? In any way you could think of experimenting or enjoying, Solomon pursued that. Any lust, any desire of like, man, if I just had somebody different, if I just had more experiences, maybe that would satisfy. Solomon did it to the point where this phrase in verse 8 says, to the delight of the sons of man. People envied what he got to experience. 1 Kings 11, 3 through 4 said that he had 700 wives. That's kind of why he had to build the house for the, the first one. She's like, I don't, I don't love all those ladies. 700 wives who were princesses, so there's, there's political power around that, there's a lot of things. And 300 concubines. It's a thousand women. And his wives, it said, turned his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not holy and truly to the Lord, as is the heart of his David, his father. So if you know David's story, we've talked about it, right? David had a pretty famous adultery, right? And, and, and it led to, to his sorrow, but also his repentance and his restoration. And a generation later, Solomon's like, yeah, dad tried it with one, I'm gonna try it with a thousand. Maybe it'll be better. He says he has 700 wives. Uh, uh, really? I mean, no wonder Solomon was able to build so much. That's 700 Pinterest boards filled with joint projects. Okay, Right? Right? So they're all pinning at you. Well, I want this, this, and this. And he's like, okay, cool. We'll make, it, we'll make it happen. A joint project, if you don't know, is when your wife finds something on Pinterest, says, I want this done, and then you do it. That's the joint project. Okay? At least that's how it goes in my house. Um, I'm not very creative, so we don't get much done. But for Solomon, right, there's, there's something darker going on because when sex is the ultimate pursuit and lust is your primary motivator, women stop being sisters. They stop being people you share friendship with. They stop being brides to love intimately and sacrificially. They stop being daughters to care for and protect and they become possessions to consume. We've seen that in our culture, right? And right now, when you think about something like pornography, that's an exponential growth of Solomon's harem. And none of it leads to joy or satisfaction. And, and I'm sure there's people like, yeah, but like, oh my God, he, should, he should be happy every night. And he's not. 
it will not lead to anything better or more satisfying. And some of us have believed that somehow it's just a degree of a little bit more. And Solomon says, I took it all the way over here to where every man imaginable would be like, what is wrong with you, bro? He's like, I'm empty. I feel shame. I wanted intimacy and instead it led to abuse. Dissatisfaction, shame, separation. It didn't go well. And so he has to move on to some self-justification in this last experiment, number four. Before we go there, I want you to ask yourself, how have you experimented with consumption? And maybe it's not around sexuality. Maybe, maybe it's around alcohol. Maybe it's a, around just trying to, to achieve or accomplish. Maybe it's around money. I don't know what it is. But how have you attempted to have joy with just a little more? And, and, and how, how is it satisfied? Okay. Experiment number four. I've earned it all. Verses nine and 10. It says this. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. He's great in wealth. He's growing all the time. The, the, the trajectory of his life is, is just parties, projects, feasts, fetishes, and it just goes and goes. All of his wisdom remains with him. He says, but it's not godly wisdom. It just helps him navigate life better. But again, for himself, he uses his knowledge and wisdom for selfish gain. He says, nothing was kept from him. So as he's building that garden with, with good fruit, right? The first garden, God said, come, enjoy, live, pleasure, protection, provision, shameless. But there is a prohibition for the purposes of remaining in communion with God, because if you have that garden without the presence of God, what's the point? Well, Solomon, it says, he's made his garden, and there is no forbidden fruit. Nothing is taboo for Solomon. Nothing is off limits for Solomon. No prohibitions in the experiment, only unbridled self-indulgence. And what was interesting is he said, as he did everything, as he consumed everything, as he built everything, he believed he deserved it all, right? I earned this. Have you seen what I built? Have you seen what I made? I've got all the wisdom too. Like everybody else is just a bunch of fools. Y'all are dumb. Like I'm smart. I, I'm, I am better than you. I deserve to live this way. I mean, at what point did he think the slaves in his house like maybe just deserved to be there? At what point did he think his, his concubines were just there for him and that he was truly better than they were? Probably pretty quick. Because it does not take much pride or much earning or much accomplishments to just put yourself just ahead above everybody else, at least in our own eyes. See, in his experiments... He believed that he was entitled to these, these gifts of God. I mean, guys, go through chapter two again, and a lot of these things are things God wants for us in some regard. 
And he took these gifts, and gifts, if you don't know by definition, are not earned, they're given. And so when we treat a gift as something that we've received, it leads to gratitude. It leads to humility. But when we take a gift and we treat it like it's something we've earned or deserve, that leads to pride and entitlement. It changes our relationship with even good things and even with good people around us. And so maybe at this point in the experiments, you're like, yeah, but has he done this? Yes. It's not a matter of degrees. It's not a matter of diversity. It's not a matter of something that he has done um, that where he just needed to try it a little bit more. Nothing was kept from him. He had a little bit more. He had a lot more. It never satisfied. And really, I think that we're not a lot different than what Solomon has tried to do. Can you really think of a cultural taboo right now where our culture says, no, nah, you can't do that. Right? I mean, you don't like your spouse? Get divorced and get another one. You don't like your gender? Change it. You don't like your state or your politics? Move. There's nothing off limits. And would you say as a society right now we're super happy? Just joy upon joy at all times. We just walk around smiling, high-fiving. Hey, brother, how you doing? No, we're more disconnected. We're more dissatisfied. We're more morally bankrupt. We're more empty. And this is what Solomon says, right? All of our pursuits of pleasure do not end up leading to happiness when what we're really searching for is joy. And so he gives the verdict in verse 11. As we get ready to close here, verse 11 says this. I considered all my hands had done, all the toil I expended in doing it. Behold, it was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun apart from God. Really, Solomon? I mean, don't, y- y'all ever had the like win the lottery fantasy? I'd be so happy then. He's like, yeah, I did. You ever seen the documentaries on people that win the lottery? See, we've experienced so much. He's, ex- he's achieved so much. He's consumed so much. He's not full. He's done the best he can to recreate heaven on earth, all about God, not satisfied. And so when the party's over, is there gain? He says, no. I wake up the next morning, just as empty. And if you're wondering why, it's because God put eternity in men's and women's souls so that that which is temporary will never satisfy us for eternity. Only that which is eternal will. And that's our relationship with the Lord. And so, again, however you've ran these experiments, and I've ran a lot of these experiments as much as I, I can or, or was able to, we have to respond, right? We need some good news in this, right? So what's our, what's our takeaway? How are we going to respond to the truth that these experiments of pleasure led to greater emptiness. We've got five quick things as we close. Number one is this. We need to recognize failure. We need to recognize where our experiments have failed, where our our pursuits have not led to joy, and and where, where joy wasn't found in them, but specifically where righteousness was was lost. Because see, these experiments that Solomon runs, they're not without consequences. Right? I mean, we're talking some pretty serious 
um, socioeconomic disparities here. It impacted a lot of other people. It did not just stay contained with him. Right? You know, we're looking at King Solomon. Last fall, we looked at, at Esther and like the King Xerxes uh, there uh, in Susa. And like, man, he did almost all the same thing Solomon did. And we said they were wicked and wrong. They're, they're wicked and wrong. And so he, he wants joy, but he ends up losing righteousness. And so um, what is sin if not just an experiment of life apart from God? What does life look like without God? That's the nature of sin. Back to the wanderer, this lyric says, I went out searching, looking for one good man, a spirit who would not bend or break, who could sit at his father's right hand. See, he's, he's seen it all done, and he's like, is there anybody that's gotten this right? Is there anybody who hasn't failed? See, the pursuit of life needs a better destination than just where it led for Solomon. Eh, no gain. No, these experiments, our failed experiments, need to lead us to a recognition of failure that leads us to Jesus. That leads us to Jesus as the one who, who was tempted in every way that we were and yet is without sin. All the temptations we have to, to live life apart from God, Jesus had all of those and yet did not sin. And so where, where we haven't earned God's good gifts, you need to know that because of our experiments of sin, what we have earned and this is tough. But what we've actually earned and deserve is the wrath of God. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. So while there's no gain in pleasure, the gain of unrighteousness is wrath and death. So we have to recognize that our experiments have failed. And if we want to experience an eternal feast with the true king in his house, and we're going to need a perfect eternal sacrifice to earn that in our place. That's, that's what we talk about with Jesus on the cross. Okay, number two. So the first one's recognize failure. Number two, we need to repent of sin. Like, repent means turn. To walk away from that which is leading us to destruction. To, to, to not just say, man, that experiment failed. Well, anyway, I invested a lot in that equipment, so I guess I'm just going to keep going with it. No, it, it, right, we know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. So at a certain point, we can't just say our experiment has failed. We've got to end the experiment and start walking another direction. We can't earn the gifts of God's grace and goodness, but we are called to repent from our experiments that lead to failure. So what experiment right now do you need to end? Where do you need to repent? What experiment is so enticing you right now that you think life would be a little bit better if I just did it a little bit more? Are you pursuing sex outside of God's design? Are you trying to seek satisfaction in relationships that aren't for you? Are you trying to pour yourself into achievements that are really for yourself rather than others? Where do you need to turn from entitlement and selfishness to gratitude? And enjoyment. See, repentance gets a bad rap because, um, you know, you're like, man, Chris did the prodigal thing. Wasn't it fun? Like, I mean, for a minute. But repentance isn't a rejection of pleasure. It's exchanging vapor-like happiness for some lasting joy. See, Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the paths of life, the direction that we're to go. 
talking to God. In your presence, talking about God, there is fullness of, it says, joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so he's saying, hey, repentance isn't a rejection of pleasure. It's actually receiving new life where we recognize that that pleasure and joy come from the presence of God. And, And who sits at the right hand of the Father? Jesus Christ does. So we find pleasure in the presence of God and the person of Jesus Christ. That's what repentance leads us to, which leads us to number three, the redeemed life, right? God's gifts of pleasure and enjoyment should lead us to worship, right? So that doesn't mean like, man, just go out here, no gluten, don't eat anything fun, don't enjoy, don't laugh for sure. He told me not to laugh, especially if it's funny, right? No, like enjoy and enjoy the God who brings joy, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That changes our purpose and pleasure. That changes our our purpose in enjoyment. In, In Jesus, I mean, like, Jesus wasn't like some weird monk that just showed up. Jesus feasted so much that the uber religious people are like, he's hanging out with people he's not supposed to. In fact, he's a drunk and a glutton. Jesus is like, uh uh-uh. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew eleven nineteen, wisdom is justified by her deeds, meaning Jesus was wise in feasting and enjoying life with other people. I mean, to be around Jesus led to joy, and our eternity with Jesus is one that is a feast. All right, number four. We're getting close, guys. Receive grace. I don't know what your experiments have been. I know what mine are. For a while, I carried a lot of shame about what my experiments led to. They led to destruction and death of relationships, of life at times. And I was just like, I, I I can't forgive myself. And then I learned what forgiveness meant, what grace meant, because I thought I knew what I'd earned. You know what your experiments have earned you. But instead, we get to receive grace. Jesus' perfect, sinless life in our place is something he gives us. So he said, Jesus tempted the same way I am, the same way you are, and yet is without sin. We get his righteousness when we exchange it for our sin, when we repent, when we receive grace. And, and before you think that means, like, again, just waiting for eternity, you know, Jesus in John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Part of the grace we receive is abundant life with God now. It doesn't mean we're going to have a Solomon-like existence. It means that there's an abundance of joy in our lives now, even in the midst of weariness and difficulty. Yesterday, I got to just go on a ferry ride across the island to go watch my daughter do a cross-country run. It was just amazing to just look out and enjoy God's creation for a minute. So much good things in the world, and yet we also get the promise of eternity with Jesus, where our souls will be deeply satisfied because they're going to be satisfied in things that are eternal. Like, yeah, I want, I want that life. I'm sick of this one. This leads us to number five, and we're done. Run the race. Till Jesus comes back, 
until you meet him face to face, until you die, we're called to live here now. And that means we're going to run a race. Not one of exhaustion, hoping to earn grace. Not one where we don't know how it ends. But a race that we can have endurance because we have hope. Because we know how it ends. Because we know that it leads to life, that it leads to joy. I'm going to close with this verse. Did I say I'm closing like four times? I think this is the real one. Okay. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a whole bunch of other people that have ran this race before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Okay. Repent and run. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, not looking around the world, not looking at our experiments, looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which is where we say there's pleasure forevermore. So know that when we run the race of repentance, receiving grace, ending our experiments, we get to receive joy, receive life, and that race ends well. I don't care how discouraged you are now, how despondent you are now, how wore out and weary you are now. Like, if you're running the race looking to Jesus, you're gonna finish. Not because of you. Because Jesus has ran the race perfectly for you. So you can exhale, take off the weight of your sin, take off the weight of your shame, and go about your days yeah, at times calling out truth to power. Yeah, at times working hard and toil. We'll talk about all that. Yep, change diapers, fold your clothes, enjoy a good meal, look at a sunset, watch a show and laugh, go to sleep, rest, wake up and do it again, and know that there's a Lord who loves you, who's with you, that there's a Jesus that would, as frustrated as you ever get, Jesus left the throne room and opulence of heaven. He walked in perfect obedience in the garden where God said, you're going to go to the cross. He said, I don't want to, but I will because it will produce resurrection, life, sacrifice for my people who've experimented with sin for generations and I don't want them to lead to where those experiments lead. I want it to lead to life for them now and life forever. So because of Jesus, we get to enjoy life now. We get to receive the good gifts of God now with the hope of a future and eternity with him as we simply trust Jesus.